welcome to the CSC Podcast. I'm Phil Haas, Director of Marketing and Communications for Classic Stage Company. On this episode, you'll hear a conversation about book banning, which is a theme from CSC's current production of A Man of No Importance, all coming up on the CSC Podcast. Hi again, it's Phil. Today we're bringing you another live conversation recorded at one of our post-performance Classic Perspectives discussions. This discussion followed a performance of a man of no importance and was titled, You Know Where Smut Eventually Leads, which is taken from a lyric in the show. In A Man of No Importance, the main character, Alfie, played by Jim Parsons, is staging a community theater production of Oscar Wilde's Salome which some members of his Catholic Church believe to be inappropriate material. For this post-show talk, our producing artistic associate, Zudi Bowari, spoke with three experts about book banning today. YA author, Kaylin Bayron, Summer Lopez, the chief program officer of free expression programs at PEN America, and Jonathan Toth, a frontline buyer from Barnes & Noble. Let's take a listen. I'm Zudi Bawari, uh, producing artistic associate here at Classic Stage Company. These are our classic perspectives, um, and tonight our classic perspective is on artistic censorship and uh, book banning. I have some really exciting guests with me today. I'll start with my friend next to me, uh, Kaylin Bayron, who is a New York Times and indie best-selling author for young adult fantasy novels whose novel Cinderella is Dead recently landed on PEN America's banned book index. (laughs) 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 Um, And next to her we have Summer Lopez, who is the chief program officer at PEN America. And that's an organization that, quote, stands at the intersection of literature and human rights to protect free expression in the United States and worldwide. And next to her, we have Jonathan Toth, a frontlist buyer for Barnes & Noble. Yes. (laughs) So let's start with, in A Man of No Importance, we see an effort to ban Oscar Wilde's Salome from being presented um, in Alfie's community. And history shows that Salome was banned from being performed itself, right? Um, And so how does that speak to you and what you're seeing today? I'll start with you. So, you know, there's... Watching this whole production is just amazing, um, and it strikes a chord. Um, I think that for me, it really is about this kind of cycle. It's kind of like human beings have this terrible habit of not learning um, from mistakes they've made in the past, and I think we see that um, book banning is nothing new. Um, It is something that continues to happen, and it is based in fear. Um, It is based in ignorance. Um, and it's incredibly disheartening, um, especially for you know communities, uh, marginalized communities, um, because our work is is targeted, and um, and so I I see the parallels. I wish I didn't. Um, mm-hmm. I wish that we had learned a little something um, in the past you know few hundred years. But it's like it it keeps it's something that keeps happening. So it's kind of this cyclical thing. Um, that I wish we could get a handle on. It's really frustrating. Yeah, thanks for that, Kevin. Yeah. What about you, Summer? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it really is, it's not something new, and PEN America as an organization that works on free expression, we've been working on book bans for decades, uh, working against book bans for decades. Um, you know, but in recent history, we've seen maybe a few cases pop up here and there around the country each year, and usually we write a letter, we put out a statement, and things, and the ban gets reversed because nobody really wants to be called a book banner, right? I think what's a little bit unique about this moment is the scale of what we're seeing and the way in which it has become entwined with other political debates that are happening, with other sort of anti-democratic movements that we're seeing around the country, whether that's against voting rights or trans rights or protest rights. Um, you know, we have been tracking these book bans over the past year, and again, normally a couple of cases a year. Over the past school year, we tracked 2,500 instances of book bans happening around the country, um, and this is just a, a completely unusual and unique scale, and it's quite organized, and it's uh, quite deliberately targeting stories by and about people of color and LGBTQ people. And, and discussions of sort of American history and, and race and gender. Um, and so it's, it's really, it is a, a kind of uniquely alarming moment that we're in right now. Yeah. Jonathan, do you have something to add to that? I mean, I think we just continue to, I don't know, ignorance is the best word, but be scared to learn about other things that, that scare us. You know, we don't want to delve into difficult topics. And I think that's a really, uh, a point that, um, it's, it's difficult because I grew up, you know, wanting to learn about everything and the fact that we don't want to talk about certain things, it's just, it's very strange to me. Um, and it is, there's an effort going on right now and it even got to us briefly mm -hmm. uh, in the summer, uh, which was mind baffling that you could even try to do that. And it went nowhere, thankfully. Um, but it was all, and it also, it was, it was done to get attention, not about the actual books and what they were doing. Uh, and that's really unfortunate. You know, um, if they talked more about the books and what kind of books they are and what they bring to the world, maybe it wouldn't have been that crazy. Yeah, so, Summer, I want to go back to you. So can you talk a little bit more about PEN America and its mission, why it started? What's your part in it? Sure, thank you. Um, so PEN America is actually, we're actually celebrating our centenary this year, so we're 100 years old. Whoa. Um, and we were, thank you. <laughs> Uh, but we were you know, founded in the wake of World War I, honestly, by writers, uh, and I think with an idea that open discourse and the literary and creative expression and, and international engagement and, and exchange were part of a global network were, were key pieces of maintaining and enabling peace and democracy in the world. And you know, I think that that is really a piece of you know, why, why we are so concerned about these issues, because we do work in the US and globally. And I oversee our advocacy and policy and research programming on freedom of expression, both in the US and, and internationally. And you know, again, these are trends that we see in other places. Book bans are weapons of authoritarian regimes around the world, from Nazi Germany to apartheid South Africa to Putin's Russia. And you know, there are a lot of echoes from some of what we're seeing right now. The, the don't say gay bill in Florida looks yeah. quite similar to the gay propaganda bill that was passed in Russia in 2014. And um, when uh, Mouse, the graphic novel about the Holocaust was banned some months ago, I looked on our website to see um, when we might have spoken about any previous bans of it, and, and we had in Moscow. Um, so you know, I, think, I think we have to think about these things in a bit of that global context too and sort of recognize them as, as the red flags they are that are about 
you know, silencing certain voices that are about controlling the narrative of what we, how we can engage with and, and interrogate our own history as a country um, and really kind of shutting down that space for discourse, which is the very opposite of everything that PEN America sort of works and stands for in terms of defending freedom of expression and freedom of the imagination. Um, and you know, the right of freedom of expression includes both the right to, to speak and to write and to express yourself, but also to access information. Yes. And so you know, this is a violation. These book bans are a violation of people's rights to access and, and engage with these stories. And you're doing that sort of in the face of, I mean, there's some, there's like violence happening against people who are fighting for this. I mean, towards librarians even, yes. like, which yeah. is so wild. Yeah, and I think, you know, another issue that we work on a lot is, is disinformation. And there are so few people or figures or institutions that people trust anymore. And people actually still have pretty high trust levels with librarians. Yeah, um, I totally trust them. <laughs> <laughs> State's inherent. Um, and so you know, I think they have such a critical role to play. And they are really under a lot of pressure right now. As you said, they are facing threats. Mm -hmm. You know, they are, you know, we've also heard from, from both librarians and teachers that they are making decisions to not carry things right now because they know that, that, that carrying that book might bring controversy, might bring attention, and might you know, mean that other things get taken off their shelves. And so there's also the chilling effect of these bans, even when they're not actually, you know, if they're not being enacted in every single school district, they are causing fear um, for the people who are making decisions about what books people can access for understandable reasons because of the degree of, of um, you know, vitriol and, and threats that people are enduring. So I really, I, I'm think, I really consider them kind of the heroes of this moment, but um, we kind of have to uh, stand in defense of them too. I think libraries foster reading. They don't adhere it or give your, they look at, librarians read the books. They do check what's coming in and that's really important. They're not just bringing anything in. So I, I think librarians are a big key for kids. Absolutely. I, um, I am very fortunate to be able to work with lots of school librarians um, and I, there is a lot of shadow banning that you, know, you hear about, which is that kind of, well, I'm just not going to order that book because I don't even want you know, any of the other kind of controversy that comes with it, which is a problem. Um, but I don't envy the position that they're in. You know, if you know, you know that if you buy this book and you have it on your shelves available, that you are going to open yourself up to, um, to threats and physical violence sometimes. Yeah. And you know, your job is at stake. There is, I think it was in, I, I want to say it was in Kansas, but I could be wrong. Um, there was a public library that was, um, they had several LGBTQIA plus books on their shelves. Their community asked them to remove these books. The library refused, and so the community had an election, like a local kind of county election. They defunded the library, and the library closed for the entire community. Oh. So it's people are out of people are scared for their jobs, their livelihoods. Um, it's a terrible position to be in, um, and and all just because of of this fear, this kind of fear mongering that happens. Um, school librarians are are some of my favorite people. Mm -hmm. They put my work and work uh, by my colleagues into the hands of the readers that need it most. Um, they have ways of getting books to young people <laughs> that aren't all, you know, if they know that they can't take this book home because of whatever, or, you know, they don't want somebody to see, they have ways. 
and they're amazing, and I, I couldn't do my job without their support. Um, and I try uh, to do my best to support them um, because they do so much uh, for, for the, the bookish community. You, your book has made it onto a list of banned books, right? Yes. Pending investigations. Yes. Right? Yes. So what is that like? I mean, you're, can you talk a little bit about your work and uh, why you feel like it was banned and what that experience has been like? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, my debut novel came out in 2020. It's called Cinderella is Dead. And it is the pitch for that book is queer black girls team up to overthrow the patriarchy in the former kingdom of Cinderella. It is, it is, yeah, it's a mouthful. Um, but it is, it's a story um, that centers queer black girls in a heteronormative environment um, and what that means for them and what that looks like as they're trying to navigate this, this world. It's also a fantasy. Um, it is, um, it's a book about knowing exactly who you are and trying to get society to meet you where you're at instead of conforming. Um, I found out that Cinderella is Dead was being challenged um, when it landed on a list uh, that was put together by Representative Matt Krause. Um, and there were over 800 books on this list. Um, and that's the, first, that's the first time that I had heard um, that it had made, since then um, it has popped up on dozens of other lists um, along with some of my other work. Um, it's because all of my work centers queer black girls. Everything that I do, all, um, all of my novels uh, center us. Um, and so um, it's, it's incredibly disheartening. Is there something that they point to that they're like, oh, this is why we want to ban it? Is it, it are they being like? Nothing logical, nothing, nothing that makes any real sense. You know, um, I, was, I, have, I have seen um, uh, communications with people who are, who are trying to get Cinderella's dead off the shelves and they're saying that it's pornography, that it is, um, that it's, and there are, I think my main characters kiss once, and there's some like teen angst, there's some longing <laughs> stares, that's about the, the, and you know, that's not to say that, that books that include more than that are inappropriate, because I don't believe in that either. Um, sex positive uh, YA books are amazing, and, um, but for Cinderella's Dead specifically, yeah, there, there are all kinds of made up things. It really is just. So they're lying. It's a lie. Yes. It's a lie, Absolutely. and they know it. And so it's, it's incredibly disheartening, but um, I have an opportunity to, to speak with young people, with my readers on a regular basis, and they are the reason that I continue to do this work because they are not the ones who are asking for these, ba these bans and challenges. They want these types of books. They want to know um, more about themselves or the people that they care about, the people in their friend groups, in their family. They want this, and they want these stories. Um, and so it's frustrating, but it doesn't outweigh um, the responsibility that I feel that I have to, to my young readers. You, you're mentioning uh, band and challenge. There, is there a difference there? There is, yes. So challenges mean somebody has brought a complaint about a book or a challenge that they're thinking it shouldn't be in a classroom or in a, in a school library or on a curriculum. And most school districts have a process for dealing with that. And so, you know, a process by which they might form a committee and educators and librarians might assess. Oh. Virtually all of the cases we are looking at have not followed any of the existing processes. So this is part of the problem, right? And actually, in most cases where the process is followed, the books are usually not banned. That is usually not the conclusion that people who review them come to in part because they would actually review the books, whereas most of these lists and most of the people putting these, these 
these challenges forward. In many cases, they've just admitted that they haven't read the books. Certainly, Representative Matt Krause did not read all 800 books no. on that list. No. We've also seen lists come forward. You know, one one uh, school district banned the Bible, and then I think just didn't realize that it was on the list of things they mm -hmm. had banned until mm -hmm. two days later. They walked it back very quickly. Uh, oh, <laughs> so you know, I think this is. It's really again. It's not. It's. It is about the content of the books, but it's not actually about these specific books, right? It's about the the ideas and the and the stories that are being represented in these books. So if you're so if it's usually like these group of librarians and so forth, who, who's behind the ones that are just flat out banning? So what, I think what's it? mostly happening right now is that because these the situation has become so politicized, a lot of you know school districts are under a lot of pressure, and the most vocal people are the ones who want these books banned. There have certainly been cases where it turns out the people challenging them didn't have children in that district, didn't maybe have children at all, um, or from not from within that district. Um, but we've definitely seen cases where the superintendent will just say, okay, you know, we're pulling all of these books. Um, you know, and we can, if, even if the, um, if they pull, the, so there are best practices for how you do these processes, right? And that those best practices do not include pulling the books from access while you're going through any sort of review process. And so even in those cases, we consider that a ban because that still means you've restricted access to them. And oftentimes those sort of temporary bans become permanent bans. Um, and, and it's not always clear exactly how, how the process continues. So, um, you know, I think that I think we're definitely seeing the kind of political influence we've seen, you know, state legislators, um, yeah. governors, uh, you know, make noise about this, and that has put a lot of pressure on, on individual school districts, and, and, you know, they're feeling pushed to take action. Yeah, critical race theory, this whole phrase that started scaring the heck out of everybody. I think anybody who says the, the phrase critical race theory should be required to define it out loud yeah. and should have to be able to tell me who Kimberly Crenshaw is uh, when they're speaking about it. That's, yes. that's just my opinion. They can't. They, they can't, wouldn't be able and they to. They won't. Right? Yeah. No. No. That's really interesting. Jonathan, can you talk a little bit about what a frontlist buyer does? Absolutely. And, yeah. um, well, I've been with the company for 18 years and I uh, Started, I worked in stores for most of my time there, so I touched every book, seen every book, had every conversation you can imagine. But what I do now is I buy and allocate new nonfiction books to the company, to, to 640 stores. Wow. So that's what I do. I work on a team of that. So I see everything new coming, well, not everything, but most of everything coming in that's new, and uh, we decide what we're, how much we're going to put into the stores and where they're going to go. And, what area? So that's something we do think about with some books. Um, I don't really deal with the YA, but I know well about it. But we do have to deal with current affairs books, and they have to go to the proper places nowadays um, because that's just where we are right now. Yeah. What have you learned uh, in this about book, about uh, about book bans? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Um, every time they try to do it, it doesn't work out the way they thought. Because um, every time they try to do it, uh, the sales shoot up exponentially and <laughs> we sell out. So um, the two big ones of this year were Genderqueer and Mouse. Yes. Uh, Genderqueer has two editions, which is really important because it's going to come up again. There's a YA edition and an adult edition. The adult edition was the one causing the problems, not the YA edition, which nobody was even really discussing. Interesting. Uh, and the, the, now the adult version is for adults. There's no way around that. The YA edition was so he could tell his, uh, their story in a less harsher light and with a less explicit information in there. 
Mao's was a different story. It was banned for naked mice. <laughs> and violence at, yes. at Auschwitz. And the fact that the Holocaust might be yeah. disturbing. Exactly, but naked mice was one of the yes, main like reasons. <laughs> and Spiegelman is a genius and what he went through and that's, and that book's been out for a long time and is a big seller. But it, it just, we go through these stocks so quickly and it's happening to the publishers too. We didn't have genderqueer for months. And we finally got Moss back in for summer reading, you know, when it was starting to get banned. But one of the biggest things that's happened, and I don't know if it's connected to it, and I just put two and two together, um, YA, or young adult, has become something very special over the last five years. Um, in the late aughts, it was run by Hunger Games, Divergent, Twilight. And then it kind of festered for a while, the section, and never grew, it never changed. I mean, when I grew up, I read John Saul, Stephen King, and uh, other you know, books that were more advanced for me. But now they have the section where all these great books aimed to people of that age group, and the section got bigger, and it got more diverse. Mm. And the books, the YA section is so diverse in any Barnes & Noble. Go through and look, you will be shocked. How, it's amazing. Like, it's so, you, I would wish it was every section was like that. There is so much. Uh, the amount of uh, LGBTQIA voices, mm -hmm. black voices, Asian voices, all diverse cultures, mental issues, everything is there. And these kids can read and feel like they're not alone and that's what's happening with a lot of these books. Another thing happened over the last two years that may be part of this. It's called TikTok. <laughs> TikTok has changed book selling altogether. As oh. This is not a banned book. But as you, a young lady called Colleen Hoover, who's running the world right now, yes. is because of TikTok. Yeah. And the kids are on TikTok and talking and recommending. There was a time when teenagers were reading a book um, called The Little Life. Uh, that is in, I think there's a BAM right now. It is the most horrifying 800 page book that will make you want to rip your soul out. But it, they were f posting videos of them crying to it. Who could have the, like it. But this is, but, this is, but it, it started that way and then they, it, they start finding new books, like Adam Silvera's uh, They Both Die at the End was one of the first start, and that one started getting on the band list. I mean, two g gay boys, and they die in the end. But, you know, right there, that's perfect. Um, and a lot of fantasy and stuff. But then when we got to that court case, there were adult books. It was the adult version of Genderqueer and Sarah J. Maas's series. Those are both in the adult section. Now, Sarah J. Maas is very popular with teenagers. She does write mature stuff. The books have kind of made their way into the adult section, and I guess a library had it, but this wasn't a library, this was Barnes Noble. Yeah. And the sci-fi adult section, they were like, you can't sell that book. That's insane. You can't sell Moss in the biography section, a summer reading stable for the last 20 years. But I think it's, the, more stores too around the company, you can see are, are embracing banned books tables. We went viral recently. Um, they, uh, some store did a CGW and it had all the books and why they were banned. And oh, cool. the reasons were so moronic that it started going viral. I mean, I think the sidewalk ends, it, Shel Silverstein's on there three times now. Um, the Giving Tree is because it's sexist. Um, sidewalk, I think when the sidewalk ends is racist. And there was another one too. Um, it, but you look at this stuff and you're just shocked that it's on there. Like, To Kill a Mockingbird to me was like the nail in the coffin this year. 
because I read that in seventh grade. Right. And most of the people who have, are the kids now are my age, and they're, and they're the ones wanting to ban these books. We all read these books. We're all fine. Why are we, why are we, like, I read Romeo and Juliet in eighth grade. I mean, I was thinking of that tonight. Rom, Rom, Juliet's 14, or 13, they're 13 yeah. and 14. I mean, there's always gonna, it's always gonna come around. It made me think of Spring Awakening today too. When they first did it in the late 1800s, people lost their mind. And I think there's, um, you know, we're hearing a lot of rhetoric right now around sort of parents' rights uh, being used in a lot of these arguments. But you know, I think what that ignores is obviously it's really certain parents' rights. And you know, in each of these cases, what we're, you know, none of this is to say that parents can't have some say in their child's education and can't be engaged, you know, in conversation with their teachers or whatever they may, you know, feel is appropriate for their child. But one parent doesn't get to decide what everybody else's children get to access because yeah. other parents may feel extremely differently. And you know, even for that child, you know, sometimes there are cases where they will you know, say, okay, they can access this book, but they need parental permission. Mm -hmm. You know, well, what about the queer child who can't talk to their parents about their identity, but right. for whom this book could be a lifeline? You know, that these, I think the, the experience of children and what these books do for them is so often really lost in these conversations. And it's really about you know, parents and their concerns and their anxieties, which you know, some of those are, are understandable. I also think the pandemic plays some role in here. There's sure. a lot of you know, anxiety about education over the past two years for good reason. Um, but, but this is not the right response. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I love that you said that because you told me actually, Kaylin, that you got responses from kids. Yeah. it's. I, I do, uh, I work with Lambda Literary and I get to do their Writers in Schools program. I also have been out on tour for books and I get to visit schools and um, I have had kids come out to me um, in email, to my face, they've pulled me aside after I'm talking to them saying um, the specific situation that we were talking about was um, a fifth grader who pulled me aside after I was out with my middle grade novel, The Vanquishers. Um, and she came up to me and she said, why do you write about LGBTQ people? And I said, well, I'm part of the LGBTQ community. And she said, well, me too. And it was, there, there was something, there's something there. And she had read Cinderella, Cinderella's Den. She's fifth grade, but she got her hands on it. Her mom was amazingly supportive. Um, but the, these, these young readers, especially for me, I write for kids. Um, I write for young people. The, the impact that a book like Cinderella is Dead um, might have on them, just I, I don't know how you can look at that and say, and, and be against it. I, I just don't know, you know, I don't know how that works. I, I, I look into these young people's faces all the time and I am constantly in awe of how brave they have to be. I wish they didn't have to be so brave, um, but yeah. they deserve better than what they're getting right now. They, you could see them in those sections. They get so excited when their new book is here. And every, it's so beautiful to watch, really. Watch them shop and just get excited to buy these books. And it's like there's a second coming of the books again for them. And I'm really, I'm happy. And I'm hoping this, we can, you know, because there's so much for them now that there wasn't there before. When I grew up, there were no gay characters for me. Right. To, you know, there really weren't mm -hmm. at, at all. And this you know, this is, I feel, I'm so excited for them because I wish I had that then. You know, I think Alfie probably felt the same way. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. And it, yeah. Oscar Wilde loved that yeah. for exactly. so many ways. That's I what remember I was Oscar thinking. Wilde went to jail. For jail for yeah. two years. Two years. Yes. And like, 
think about that. And that was only 120 years ago. You know, it's, it's not, you know, Alan Turing, it's a similar thing, was only 19, the World War 1950. It's, yeah. it's, it's not that far removed. And that's why it's important to have these voices. Yeah, I think I can say for everyone that we are super thankful for you all for being on the front <laughs> lines of this. And thank you all for being here. I really appreciate it. <laughs> we have Caleb Barron, Summer Lopez, and Jonathan Cox. Thanks for listening. For more information on Classic Stage Company, visit us online at classicstage.org. You'll find past episodes of the podcast and can learn more about all our programming. Once again, I'm Phil Haas, and we hope you'll join us next time on the CSE Podcast. Take care.